There are lots of ways you can be touched by Shakespeare. For some people, it can touch you so hard, you quite literally fall over. I was watching an extraordinary performance by Syrian home of Richard III, and I was so captivated by, I realized later, the verse. You put a hypnotic character on the stage, and you hypnotize your audience with the language, and the audience wonder what is going on. I wondered what was going on to such an extent that I passed out. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. The story you just heard was Sir Ben Kingsley talking about the way Shakespeare changed his life. In his case, after he was revived, he watched the rest of the play and then begged members of the Royal Shakespeare Company to let him join. That story is just one of dozens on the exact same subject, told by actors, directors, writers, soldiers, a Holocaust survivor, in a new web video series titled, appropriately, How Shakespeare Changed My Life, gathered by actor-director Melinda Hall. Melinda came into the studio recently to talk about the series, where it came from, what she's learned from it, and where it's headed. We call this podcast, Mine Honor, Yea, My Life Be Thine. Melinda is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. What a dream job you have, talking to all these famous actors about Shakespeare. And I'm thinking a lot of these people are not easy to nail down for an interview. I know that from personal experience. So (laughs) it it made me think that whether Shakespeare somehow opens doors in a way that other topics don't and what it would be about Shakespeare that makes hard-to-get celebrities come to the table. Yeah, it's funny. It's sort of there's a Shakespeare hook. When I send the pitch, like the one-liner about what the project is, I've never had anyone say no. That is amazing, yeah. really. And we... no, not if I've communicated with them directly. Leah Schreiber said that not a lot of people ask him what he thinks about Shakespeare. So for him, he really wanted to get some things off his chest and you know participate. Oh, that's interesting. And he does get a lot of things off his chest, and we're going to talk about <laughs> okay. him in, cool. in, yeah. in a moment. I mean, I, first, I just have to ask you, how did all of this start? I mean, what, what was the original idea, and how did you get it? I'd say there's several things that coalesced to allow me to start this project. One was how Shakespeare changed my own life, and then the other was I just happened to be at some dinner of a few years ago, quite a few years ago, and I, I was there with Patrick Stewart, who was being honored, and he spoke about this early experiences that he had with Shakespeare, living in Yorkshire. And I don't know, I guess he changed the way I imagined Shakespeareans came to be, because I thought, you know, from my American standpoint, that everybody had a great education and parents who were into it and all this. But Patrick Stewart did not. And Right. They he, were very poor. And, and he didn't even they didn't even really value education. No, no. And he said that there was. Low expectations. Right. So he said that there was a complete works that he had gotten a hold of and his brother had read it to him and that in his brother's accent, he thought that Hamlet was saying shoveling off this mortal coal because they were from coal country. And he said it wasn't until years later (laughs) that he realized it wasn't coal. (laughs) It was coil. Anyway, so that I didn't ever interview him or I haven't interviewed him yet, but that sort of spurred me to the idea of, wow, I 
I don't know how people got started in Shakespeare, and I have assumptions that are probably incorrect, and I would like to learn. I would like to know how somebody came to meet Shakespeare, and I, did it change their life? I think that assumption is so common. I mean, we, we recently had Derek Jacobi, the actor, the, the British actor and the guy known for I, Claudius, on the podcast, and and I was surprised myself that someone who played so many kings in Shakespeare and, and was I, Claudius, actually came from a very humble East End, lower middle class family. I mean, it was East Enders where yeah. his background, and it's so naive. But it's interesting, you, <laughs> you, you said your own story of how Shakespeare changed you. Yeah, absolutely. So when I had graduated college, I was working as an actor, and then I happened to go see Earl Hyman play King Lear at the Dallas Shakespeare Festival. And he did such a magnificent job, and it was the first time I ever saw anyone actually play a Shakespearean character believably, that I believed King Lear existed. And Earl Hyman, we should say, he, he played Othello just hundreds of times, and, and he was also an unforgettable stage actor in other roles, and on TV he was Cliff Huxtable's father in Cosby. So. That's correct, yeah. And he was in Thundercats. Oh, yeah. Let's not forget he Thundercats. Was, he's very <laughs> pa- proud of being Panthro. Um, so what happened was the play finished, Everyone's packing up and leaving, and I was glued to the bench. It was this outdoor festival. I was just glued to the bench, and I didn't know what happened except for I wanted to learn how Shakespeare came about and why we're all sitting there and why we're still watching it and and what's in there and why we're so interested in it. And anyway, so Earl's performance definitely changed my life. And then when I lived in New York City, he happened to be standing in front of me at the um, dance bookshop, which no longer exists at Lincoln Center. And I said, hey, I saw you in King Lear last year, and I'm here in New York, and I decided to come study Shakespeare. And uh, yeah, thank you. And he said, well, I'm in a play at the public. Here's my, give me your phone number. I'll call you and I'll get you a ticket. And I thought he was just being very nice. And I but didn't really believe that he would actually call me. But sure enough, three weeks later, he did. And I went to see his play. And uh, we were friends for the next 27 years after that. Oh, that's that Shakespeare club <laughs> network thing <laughs> at work. It's this weird family, you know, part of the Shakespeare family mafia thing. I don't know. And you talked to Earl Hyman. For the, you have an episode with him, which oh, is yeah. wonderful. Tell us about his story. Oh, yes. Okay. So he originally was from North Carolina, but then his family had moved to Brooklyn. But then in the summers, he still went back to North Carolina. And this was the time where, well, black people weren't allowed in public libraries. And so in his town in North Carolina, they built a community center where black people were allowed to go. So I remember one day I went in and I asked the lady sitting at the desk of the library, I said, what is the largest book you have here, the biggest book? thinking, well, in the biggest book, I would find the most knowledge. She said, well, I guess, uh, Mr. Hyman, she called me that, although I was uh, not that old. You were a master down there until you were a mister. And you were a mister when you were 13, and then you could put on your first pair of long pants. But anyway, that's not Shakespeare. So she said, I guess that would be the complete works of William Shakespeare. I said, well, could I take that out? She said, yes, you may. And I took it out. And he spent the summer reading Shakespeare in his underwear. Well, you know, North Carolina summers are notoriously hot. And, uh, those long summer afternoons 
when my parents said, you, you and your brother, go out and get up on your bed and take off your clothes except for your underwear because it's too hot to be out there playing in the sun. And sure enough, we would go up there. My brother, you know, we'd take, strip down to underwear and then he would lie on his bed and I would lie on my bed. But I had the complete works of Shakespeare. I was fascinated. Uh, that's just, it's so wonderful. It's such a wonderful image to your metaphor, I guess. Shakespeare, The Complete Works, was was the biggest book, the book with the most knowledge. Yeah, and also his desire to learn never stopped. I mean, he recently passed away, and I would go visit him in the nursing home, and when I would walk in, he would be still reading King Lear. Oh. James Earl Jones was another interesting episode. Uh, and and uh, sim- similarly, he talked about the incongruent way that he heard about Shakespeare. He talked about he was he was hoeing in the in the fields as a child, right? Yeah. Hoeing is when you after you plant and the plants come up and the grass starts competing with the plant, you gotta go out and take a hoe and chop away the weeds and the grass so that Suddenly he's out there in the fields and suddenly hears, I came to marry Caesar, not to praise him. <laughs> and we were chopping, we were hoeing away. Suddenly I hear I came to bury Caesar, not to praise him. What is that? Is my uncle Robert, Robert Walker, reciting an oration by Anthony. Uncle Robert was, was a, a fan of Shakespeare. <laughs> and that was the first taste of it I ever heard of a, one of the most famous speeches and uh, probably most effective speeches in terms of what politics is about. He does say in that episode that he didn't talk himself. He said, I didn't talk myself. That's true. He had a traumatic experience. And for many years as a child, he did not speak. And then when he did speak, he had a stutter, which he overcame and turned his weakness into his greatest strength. It's it's wild. I I noticed, you know, quite a few of the actors uh, you talk to do talk about their lives, but they also talk about their craft. You wanted to find out what brought people to Shakespeare. That was the initial um, impetus for this series. But what did you ask about acting that would get them talking about craft? And if you didn't ask pointed questions about it, how did it, how does it keep coming up? I did not uh, act uh, ask anything about acting. I'm an acting teacher myself, and for whatever reason, I never ask about someone's technique or anything like that. I do ask about style. Because I'm very interested in style of Shakespeare, meaning the actor at any time can talk to the audience, meaning there's the, ca- the actor that we accept. We accept that Liev is playing Macbeth. and then Liev Schreiber. Right. And so we say – we go into the theater saying, OK, he's playing Macbeth, but we know it's Liev Schreiber. And so at any given point, there's this triangle relationship between the actor, the character, and the audience. And I think in Shakespeare's time, that was way more fluid than it is now. Direct address really, really goes for me hand in hand with playing Shakespeare and soliloquy. And the funny thing is it says serve me on so many levels. At first, I think it's a very compelling relationship with an audience because it, part of what it says is I'm not denying the fact that I'm an actor. I am who I am right now, but that doesn't make what I'm saying any less compelling. And can you relate to it? As me as the character, me as the actor, you as the audience, all of those things. Can you encompass all of those things in this moment? And I think that's a very profound relationship to have to a play and to an audience. There's a lot of fourth wall acting where 
you know, unfortunately, we put the audience in the dark and then the actor character talks to himself, which was not the style in which Shakespeare wrote. Uh, Shakespeare wrote that the actor character would ask the audience questions like, um, you know, Juliet at the potion speech, you know, saying, if I if I drink this and it doesn't work, am I going to wake up and have to marry Paris? That was a direct question to the audience. She wasn't talking to herself. So unfortunately, I think since we started putting the audiences in the dark, it's become more voyeuristic and less communal. Well, speaking of Liv Schreiber, he, he talks about breaking down one of the speeches from Macbeth. And he's pretty funny about how actors go off the rails that way. <laughs> it can be really, really excruciating. I've sat through some really, really long and bad productions. I we want like to understand every word, but that doesn't mean that you act every single word. <laughs> right? They because beat, then, beat yeah. the word to death. <laughs> yeah, because then by the middle of the sentence, the audience is saying, wait, what are we talking about? Um, yeah. What you see a lot of is, if it were done, when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. If the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his surcease success. And now you see the actor there is working all of the ideas in every word. Surcease is a difficult word. Trammel is a difficult word. And you see the actors in those situations rush to go trammel up. I'm going to show you a net. I'm catching fish. And surcease going down. I'm dying. And the problem is that as an audience member, we have to follow all of those cues and it becomes really labored. Whereas if you follow the structure of the verse line, which in a 10-beat verse line that kind of ascends at the end, you get a deeper sense of the thought. But it's hard to teach that to people because then they have to trust this instinctive thing of, oh, just go up at the end of the line and move quicker, which isn't entirely true. A better way to tell them is to say, where does the thought end and what is the thought? So that then you could put the line, if you can figure out a line, like if it were done when it is done, then twere well it were done quickly. Is that the end of the thought? No, because it goes, if the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with his or see success that but this blow might be the be all and the end all here. And then what's the next thing? But here upon this bank and shoal of time, we jump the life to come. That's the cherry on the Sunday. That's the end of the thought. In contemporary English, that would be, God, if we could just get through this. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great? Ironically, what we try to do is we try to over-specify the line, whereas it's just a beautiful way of saying that thing, but longer. And because it's longer, it allows for more emotion, because there's more time. But that means you have to move through the thought quicker, so that it becomes, if it were done when he's done, then for well it were done quickly. If the assassination could tremble up the consequence and catch with his or see success, that but this blow might be the be-all and the end-all and it leaves you in this shuddering place of potential, as opposed to, if you've labored every line, if it were done when it is done, then twere well it were done quickly. And the audience becomes agonized. Well, you've talked to how, how many actors now? Well, it's a combo of actors, directors, writers, uh, linguists. Um, and spe specifically looking at the actors, you talk to British and American actors. Correct. Of course, this is Shakespeare. Yeah. It, how do the American actors compare to the British ones in, in what they want to talk about in their story? I would say from the British actors I did talk to, it is part of their education. 
way more than it is part of the American education. Well, yeah. I mean, it, I think it gets to this issue of American actors feeling like we don't have the inheritance of Shakespeare. <laughs> we're, we're, we don't deserve to do this. And, and so what about the, the American actors? Who come? Who who j- comes to mind? Uh, oh, Stacy Keach is a fantastic Shakespearean actor. Can do anything and has done since he was in his twenties. I remember my drama teacher in high school asking uh, on a test, "Who is the most famous Shakespearean actor?" I had no idea. I mean, absolutely no idea. It was Laurence Olivier. That was the answer, and I had never heard of Laurence Olivier. But from that moment on. Laurence Olivier became like a fixation for me, and I, I went and saw all the movies that he made, and he became my god. Well, Stacy Keach, and, in, in his episode, he talks about um, growing up thinking that Olivier was God. Yeah, he's not the only one. Americans still do that. They want to present that special sound that they think is the way Shakespeare's supposed to sound. Well, it is interesting who actors see perform roles and that inheritance that they have. I, I think Earl Hyman saw Gilgood. Or Olivier and Stacey Keach saw Olivier and 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 somebody else, uh, Liev Schreiber, talks uh, about or did see Raoul Julia playing yes. Othello in Central Park. Yes. And F. Murray Abraham also. And when I did my first, worked on my first Lear, it was Morris Karnofsky. And uh, I loved Karnofsky in the part. It's said that that's uh, actually that's a Jewish play that Shakespeare's written. This is a family tragedy, and he's the tyrant father, and he would do this stuff and these gestures, and I loved it. And 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 just his personal route to to his sound and his personal attachment to Shakespeare. You can absolutely rely on him. Just stick with the words. He knows more than you do, and he's written this for you. This, he had you in mind when he wrote this. It's hard to conceive of that. But I completely, I've got to tell you, when I did Bottom, I said, this, he wrote this for me. He had me in mind. Like, what an amazingly smart man he was. <laughs> but uh, I want to be lyric. It's here. funny. This is a really interesting idea that other actors pick up on, too. Lee Schreiber, he, he's describing um, playing Hamlet and that the tragedy of that is that you can't possibly play Hamlet because the whole audience is Hamlet. Um, yeah, which I thought was actually quite eloquently said when he said that. Uh, I do think it's true. I think there's an ownership. And a lot of the interviews talk about the personal relationship people have to the Shakespeare, Shakespearean characters. They have a specific way that they think it should be performed or produced, and it should satisfy their personal relationship with what they think of Hamlet or what they think of uh, Beatrice or Benedict or King Lear. And what do you think that is then? And I've asked this of a number of people on this podcast. What is it about Shakespeare that allows the plays to function as a mirror for mm. people? I mean, that is the goal of all great art. Yes. I think that people are endlessly curious about themselves. And when they watch Shakespeare, they see a part of themselves that they need to see. And those representations are very important. There's a part of everyone who is Hamlet, who is a young person who feels wronged. There is a part of everyone who is King Lear, who makes a stupid mistake and has to pay for it. And there's a part of everyone who's uh, Benedict that completely refuses to think that he could be love's fool and then turns out to be love's fool. It reminds me of um, what I learned recently 
at the Folger, which was the origin of the word pupil. Now, we think of that to mean student, right? Um, but it actually comes from the Latin pupa, P-U-P-A, meaning little doll. And what that comes from is in early modern times, they believe that when you look at another person, you don't see the other person. You see yourself reflected in their pupil. You see the little doll of you in their eyes. And so I think that Shakespeare does that. It reflects us back to ourselves. And we're very interested in ourselves. Then does that mean that we go to Shakespeare seeking that experience? Seeking? I think we go to Shakespeare to see us, yes. So so unconsciously we, we go to it as if to a mirror. Because we do know the plays. Most people, most people who encounter Shakespeare know maybe the plot outline. So you're not looking to, you know, what happens next. <laughs> right. So why do well, someone like myself, why do I, why have I seen, oh gosh, uh, Twelfth Night, you know, 18 times. Why? Why? <laughs> why have I done right, that? Right. Why, Melinda? <laughs> I'm just, whoa. Uh, uh, well, I guess I'm looking for something. I'm, I'm looking to learn something. I'm looking to see myself up there as whatever character I want at that moment. Um, Viola that has to go undercover. We're seeing a Sebastian that's confused. <laughs> We're seeing an Olivia that is... Twitter painted or something, you know. I I'm perhaps there's all of me in the sh- the characters that I want to see. One of the things I want to pick up on is uh, one of your interviewees who really stood out for me, Estelle Parsons. And to remind everyone, she's a, a Broadway actor. She also won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in Bonnie and Clyde. And she said that there's a curse about the way Shakespeare is done in America from her point of view. Shakespearean, you know, there's a real curse about the way Shakespeare is done, I think, in uh, America. It seems to have been some kind of thing that followed a tradition of, I don't know what, not theater. What was she getting to to with that? that What was she getting at with that? I think her experience was she probably would have liked to play more Shakespeare uh, and had been able to tackle some of the traditionally male-gendered roles in Shakespeare because she is a strong actor. But at the time, the females that were playing, you know, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s even, the females that were playing in Shakespeare were more, you know, kind of ingenue types. And she has said that she's never been that. Well, I've had a rough... uh time with Shakespeare because nobody ever wanted to hire me for it and if I did ever get an audition for it I couldn't figure out what on earth it was all about or so everybody you know there are a lot of players many 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 actors out there that want to break the mold and I'm talking about people who want to who identify um, in a non-binary way that want to break the mold I'm talking about female identifying that want to play traditionally male characters or male identifying that want to play traditionally female parts that and and have it be presented which is great that we're at this place now because when the plays were written as you know the young boys did play 
the female roles. So now if we could just balance it even more where women or ident- women identifying can just play whatever they want, um, that would be brilliant. And and certainly there have been all female productions of Shakespeare and that this has happened, but it's it's still it's still this hurdle you always have to get. Yeah, it's not over. interchangeable. So what you just said is, yeah, you could do an all female cast or an all male cast. But what about a King Lear? Well, actually, Glenda Jackson did it. So sure. I don't think that was all female. So, yeah, what but about she, just but a mixed she's Glenda Jackson. So. <laughs> she is. She I think is. Estelle Parsons is saying even those of us who aren't Glenda Jackson should be able to play Lear. <laughs> yeah. um, yes. Well, Estelle could definitely pull it off. Yeah. So who did you want to talk to but you weren't able to get? And you said you everyone you've asked so far said yes. So so who's your dream? Oh, well, like the big stars, uh, Meryl Streep or Helen Mirren or Glenda Jackson. That would be amazing. Or even someone who's not such a big star but that has a pivotal moment when Shakespeare literally changed their life. And uh, uh, in the series so far, which one is closest to your heart in terms of that, someone who's a non-actor? So there are some people I've interviewed that are outside of the entertainment business. One is a Holocaust survivor. Her name's Ava Rocek. And she is living in America now, but she was originally from Czechoslovakia. And she got deported to Theresienstadt when she was a teenager. And she was with a group of young ladies that they came to and they said, who wants to be gardeners? And she says, okay. But they took the young ladies out to the middle of nowhere, and they had them start digging mass graves. And so it wasn't for gardeners. It was for grave diggers. And so when Ava was there working, one of the guards who was patrolling her overheard her because she started speaking to Tanya's lines in Czech. And he understood, and he pulled her aside and said, you know, tonight, you and your mother, you need to run. Because this crew is, it's over. And he meant that they were about to be executed the next day. He then yelled at her to pretend that she was doing something wrong. And she went back in the line. And um, her and her mother that night with a couple of friends ran away. And she felt that had he not overheard her speaking Shakespeare, he would never have told her to leave. As if that's what jogged his humanity. I have no idea. But... Luckily, it happened, and she went on, and she and her husband, who was also a survivor, went on and had kids, and then they moved to the U.S. and taught science at a university in the Midwest. What an amazing story. I, it, it makes me think of what so many of our guests on the show have talked about, how how Shakespeare has a global reach. It just it transcends nationalities or language or political division some way. Yeah. When she was a teenager, the reason why she learned to Tanya's lines was at there's like the people in her ghetto were going to do a little Shakespeare play and there was no other girl to play to Tanya. So she she started learning it. But the play never got up because everybody had gotten deported to the concentration camp. This is this is one of those um, middle of the night questions. But if you could talk hmm. to Shakespeare what, for the for the series, what would you ask? Oh, I want to take him to a Shakespeare play today and ask him <laughs> what he likes about it and what he doesn't like about it. I want to know if any of the characters resembled real people that were in his life, uh, and I want to know his friends that he was in the company with. 
did they write together? Did they did they criticize his lines when he, you know, brought in lines from rehearsal? Were there actors in his company that said, I'm not saying that? You know, does he face the same things that contemporary writers face? Uh, yeah, I have a lot of questions. I think that interview would be a very long episode. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to record it, though. <laughs> and maybe I would maybe I would ask him when I asked the other people I interviewed is, do you have a favorite line? And I wonder if he would be even uh, concerned that we all know his, we all know those lines. What you very still, irritated you, by that question? I bet <laughs> you still know my lines. What What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, like to be or not to be. Oh, what? <laughs> I still know that. that? You cared about that? Oh no! I no, thought that no. one was a dog. <laughs> no, no, no. Go Go to King John. That's where the great lines are. <laughs> That's a Shakespeare nerd joke, right there. I I recognize. It. <laughs> um. So I. It, it definitely makes sense that actors would be drawn to this, but I am curious who who do you think you're making the series for, or who 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 are you intending it for? What kind of audience? Well, believe it or not, the series right now has a following of a lot of students that get assigned to read some Shakespeare, but then they want to know more about people's personal connection with Shakespeare. So there's some university people out there and some high school teachers and even some middle school teachers that follow the series and they'll just, you know, have the kids watch a few episodes. So that's actually very significant for the way that I started producing it because originally this started as a feature film and then I wanted it to be a real series, but then everything changed with streaming and the internet and YouTube and then I decided, okay, I'm just going to throw it out there and do it in short form and so people can just take what they need from it, and keep going. Before you go, I do want to ask you about an, another Shakespeare initiative you're involved in. It's the annual Shakespeare's Birthday Sonnet Slam in Central Park. And and first, for people who have never attended, what what is it? Okay, so I created and I produced this event in New York City where I ask 154 people of all ages and abilities to come to the Banshell at Central Park and speak all 154 Shakespearean sonnets back to back. No more be grieved at that which thou hast done. Roses have thorns and silver fountains mud. Clouds and eclipses stain both moon and sun. And loathsome canker lives in sweetest bud. Mine eye and heart are at a mortal war. Who heaven itself for ornaments doth use, and every fair with his fair doth rehearse, making a compliment of proud compare with sun and moon, with earth and sea's rich gems. Vaunt in their youthful sap at height decrease, and wear their brave state out of memory. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. It's wonderful to have just the reader and Shakespeare alone up on that stage, even if it's only for a minute, because most of the people are not actors. They're just people who want to get up there and do 
a Shakespeare sonnet. And so the sonnets are assigned randomly and they can register in advance. They can study their sonnet or they could just come and read it off of a piece of paper. It doesn't matter to me how they perform it. And also it's a unique event in that you don't really get to hear all 154 sonnets back to back. And the audience is pretty interested. This has been so much fun, and I've enjoyed the series so much, too, and I can't wait to see who you talk to next. Thank you so much. Thanks, Barbara. Melinda Hall is an actor, writer, and stage director. She created the web series How Shakespeare Changed My Life for her company, Willful Pictures. You can watch Melinda's videos and get more information at the Willful Pictures YouTube channel. And if you'd like to be part of the Sonnet Slam, you can register at sonnetslam.com. She was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Mine Honor, Yea, My Life Be Thine was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kernpaster and Esther Farrington. Esther French is the web producer. We had technical help from Andrew Feliciano at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Deb Santopoulos at the Radio Foundation Studio in New York. The interview was recorded by Paul Luke and by Ben Elman, who made a point of telling us after we were done that his life was changed in high school when he first read Shakespeare using the Folger editions. If you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, we hope you'll do us a favor. Please consider rating and reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you get the podcast from. It helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it, people who might enjoy it. We'd really appreciate your help. Thanks. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.